You are listening to March Mad Men, the podcast conceived to crown the greatest haunted house film ever made. Tonight, we are dealing with the final matchup of the Sinister 16. We're closing out the round with another supernatural grudge match. Tonight, we've got a film set in Iran during the height of the Iran-Iraq War, and another film that straddles timelines between 2001 and, more or less, quote-unquote, the present, right here in the United States. And both of these films have certain commonalities I think we're going to dig into. Both are excellent, and I am pretty excited to be here with you guys tonight. Of course, I am John Evans. My co-hosts are Emmy-nominated television producer Rich Eckersley and multiple times produced horror screenwriter Vikram Wheat. Vic, what is new in your corner of this haunted world? John, my life has descended into the eighth circle of hell today. Uh, I had a I had a shitty day, you know, and it's like I love to come in here and be like, John, I'm so excited to be here and to to talk about these movies and I love horror and I love you guys and I love our listeners. But you know what? Fuck you guys. All right, just fuck everybody. Fuck everything. It was a shitty day. I don't really want to talk about it. So I'm I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad we get to do this. I am excited to talk about these movies. But you know, sometimes. Sometimes that's just the way it is, man. Sometimes you come in with with that kind of that kind of negative energy. I'm going to try not to shit on anything too hard, but uh, I'm not making any promises. Well, I'm really glad that you're holding us personally responsible. Shut Rick. the that's fuck good. up, John. <laughs> oh, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> well, uh, Rich, I hope you're in a better mood. What's going on with you, buddy? I feel like this is some really uh, uncharacteristic role reversal. I uh, I had a pretty great day. You know, there were a few challenges that were faced, but I got past them. And I got great things going on in my personal life, great things going on in my professional life. I'd say this is a – you caught me at a really, really good time. And I'm excited because I think that this matchup is going to be a bloodbath, honestly. Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited about it myself. Um, I think these are really weirdly similar films, and I want—I can't wait to see if you guys picked up on the same similarity that I see, because obviously on the surface, they could not be more different. And of course, we are talking about uh, Oculus and Under the Shadow, two, uh, yeah, extremely different films on, on one level. But uh, I think they're both really strong haunted house movies, and uh, yeah, we're going to get right into it immediately, starting with Oculus, our number six seed in our little tournament. Let's start with highlight sequence, as we're doing in the Sinister 16, and so many candidates for this. I, I definitely had trouble watching the film about an hour ago, like narrowing it down. I hope you guys have something in mind. Vic, let's start with you, bud. You know, I do, although I, I really had a similar issue with it, John, in that this movie really affected me watching it again. I think part of that is, as our, our listeners probably know, I have, I have acquired a dog since uh, the last time I watched it. And so I was, as my life continues to just dovetail with the horror movies that we're watching, 
uh, it was it was even I think added an extra layer by having my my dog asleep next to me and watching the the various dogs uh, have bad things happen to them over the course of this movie, which is pretty brutal. You don't see that a lot. But uh, Dick, yeah, I want to point out that one of the dogs just runs off scot free. So theoretically, she points out that a lot of things go bad after that, and she says that the mirror has been feeding off of the dog. Oh, it must have it must have fed more than I thought. And so I, maybe the maybe the dog goes off and has an aneurysm. John, you don't know. That dog is not happy. I don't think. And also, it just ran off. Maybe it's in a shelter. Who knows what's happening to that dog? I don't yeah, want to think the, about it. And the dog's ugly. It's got to spend the rest of its life looking like that if it does live. <laughs> it is. It is a. It is a very ugly dog. I think they purposefully picked a dog that was not that cute. It did cross my mind when the brother releases the dog that he's saying that the the girl is the biggest threat to the dog, his sister, in in this house, and then he just says, "Hey, dog." Go try L.A. traffic or wherever this this film is set. You know, the dog just goes off into the world because we all know that dogs should roam free in urban America, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's my highlight sequence is him, is him setting the dog free to go die on the streets of L.A. Um, <laughs> no, I just what I what I what I'm trying to say is that I really had a hard time finding a highlight sequence because this movie still scared the shit out of me. Uh, and I, there were still parts that I felt like I wanted to skip, even knowing what was coming. There was stuff that made me so uncomfortable that I, I really had to kind of pressure myself to be like, all right, it's okay. You know, it's going to happen. Just, just ride it out. And not all of it was the, the, the horror scenes. Uh, certainly those were still effective, but some of the family dynamics are just, they're brutal watching what happens to these kids as this family sort of disintegrates. But my highlight sequence, I, I know I went off on a long tangent the last time we talked about this, about the scene when she mistakes the uh, light bulb for the apple, or does she? But that haunts my, haunts my, my dreams and my nightmares, the idea of ingesting glass like that. So, but I'm going to put that one aside because there was a similar thing it is literally my other, like, physical reaction to something happening in a horror film is fingernails being torn off. Uh, that goes back to, I can truly trace that to watching a movie called The Video Dead when I was too young to watch a movie called The Video Dead. When a zombie drags a woman down a hallway and she's grabbing the walls and scraping her fingernails along it, one of her fingernails pops off and that just wrecked me for life so the scene in which the father uh who has who has gnawed his fingernail down to the uh to the quick and has put a band-aid on it and he's working on his computer and you can see that the band-aid is sort of frustrating him and so he pulls the band-aid off and throws it on the on the desk and he keeps working and then he looks down and the band-aid is back and so he tries to get it off and he can't get it off and when he can't get it off he reaches in the drawer and pulls out a staple remover and uses the staple remover to try and pull off the Band-Aid. And only when it pops off does he realize that the Band-Aid has actually been off 
This has been some sort of hallucination, and what he's done is ripped off his fingernail with a staple remover. I just that's I had for all the psychological complexity and and layered characters and and everything else that goes into this film, the visceral reaction I have to that scene along with the the light bulb eating scene is really an accomplishment. It just oh, it, I can feel my my skin crawling just recounting it. I, I got to piggyback on that. <laughs> Kim was making uh, her dinner in the next room while I was watching that. And I was just like, ugh, 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 like kind of groaning because I knew what was happening because I've seen the movie before. Like even just as he's like, huh, there's the bandit again. I better get this off. God damn it. It's not coming off. I know what's really happening. Like when he reaches for the, the um, staple remover. So this is one of those brilliant sequences where instead of losing power after you've seen it before, it only makes it more excruciating somehow because you actually know there's that second level that's happening. And it, that scene is hard to watch. I was watching it kind of like, kind of like this just, just tonight. So wholeheartedly agree, Vic. And she's like, what, what's wrong? What, what, what's, what are you watching? And I, I paused it and I walked her through the scene because <laughs> I had to. <laughs> Rich, any thoughts on that sequence? I, yeah, actually, so I actually don't have that. I know that that is a, a thing for people. I'm not particularly disturbed by, by fingernail horror, which I feel like we've seen a couple of times. I know notably in the orphanage, there's a memorable fingernail shot. So it's definitely a, a motif that we've seen come up, I'm sure, across horror in general, but we've certainly seen a lot of it lately. Uh, but I agree that this moment is really strong. I do like that it's a nice payoff to, you were talking about the family dynamics. There's a scene earlier where there's a there's a family dinner and Katie Sackhoff, who plays the mom, takes like a, a sort of a slight dig at the husband by telling the kids, like, well, I hope you don't bite your uh, your fingernails like your father does. So... You know, you get a little bit of a tee-up early on in the in the process, and it, and it pays off in this moment. So I like it. I also, you know, this is a good time to call out. I am not really fam that familiar with Rory Cochran, who plays uh, the father in this movie. But I am just really struck, especially on this viewing, I, what a strong performance it is. I really feel like, like he, he is always playing it cool, whether he is in good guy or, or bad guy mode in this movie. And so his his character shifts are subtle, but I feel like you really can see the his transition from a warm, you know, if low key dad to a murderous psychopath in this house, and it, it all feels very natural. And uh, so yeah, this is this is a good moment for him um, in a movie that he really shines. It's kind of the anti Jack Nicholson performance, right? Yeah, like Jack really goes over the top. And he very much underplays what what is really a similar character arc. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, he he does sort of have a somewhat. He's certainly not a leading man. So, like right from the beginning, you kind of look at him, and I wouldn't say disreputable's not the word, but he has sort of a weirdly brooding quality he's certainly not a thug you believe that he's this sort of white collar you know programmer type guy 
but there is there is sort of I wouldn't call it a darkness, but there's just something off. Like he's not he doesn't have any overt charm, which is which is interesting. He definitely doesn't look like a salesman, for example, you know, in any way. I agree. It's like a, I guess that's why I found it so impressive, especially, you know, on this, which I think is like my third or maybe fourth viewing of this movie, is that it's kind of a, it's sort of, it's like a sleeper performance. It, he just doesn't strike you when you first see him. He doesn't necessarily stand out. He's kind of like melting into the, into the background a bit. And I don't mean that as a, as any sort of dig against him. If anything, it just makes what, he's doing like a little more complex that it takes some time to get what's going on underneath the, the sort of like calm exterior that he's holding up throughout the movie. But yeah, I was, I was, I'm happy that he's getting called out for the first pick here. Yeah. There's nothing bland about him. Like there's nothing sort of, uh, he's not a cipher. He's just like not a James Brolin, you know, he's not a conventional sort of, I'm the man of the house kind of a thing, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm this sort of charming figure. It, it, it's interesting. He's, he feels like a real guy, which is great. And I, and I love his transition, not, not to get too far away from that scene, but like his, his dialogue, like as he becomes more evil, you know, I love the, the like, the like, what, what is it princess when the, the daughter's begging stuff of him? And, and she's like, she's like, we're out of food. And he's like, it's on my list. Yeah, like you're right. Really, <laughs> yeah. the, the opposite of Jack Nicholson. Like he's just like he's sinking further and further into suburban dad. Like that is his descent into evil. Well, very specifically, I think that it's that same scene where the the kids come in and he goes, "Hey, champ. <laughs> hey, princess." <laughs> like just back to back, gives him their sort of generic nicknames. It's oh. great. <laughs> Yeah, so much to like about this movie. Um, all right, Rich, what's your uh, highlight sequence? So I'm I'm with you, I'm with you, Vic. That this was a tough movie to to pick from. I felt like watching it again. It it does seem to get better and better every time I I dig back into this film, and I do feel like it. There are places where I've gotten confused in the past and you know you can look at this as a as a positive or negative but things make a little more sense each time you go through it and that makes it a rewarding rewatch i wanted to pick something that captured one of the things that i really love about this movie i just wanted to pick something that didn't um get too close to the ending for john so i picked something that happens in the first 15 minutes of the film just to be on the safe side um, I, I appreciate think, that. I appreciate that, Rich. I'm always thinking, I'm always thinking of you. <laughs> um, so I mentioned this when we the first time I watched the movie, and I came back to it. it and maybe it seems like an, an unobvious choice, but I really love the exposition scene when Karen uh, Gillan as, as Kaylee brings her brother back to the house as a, as an adult, and basically does the scene that we've seen in just about every horror movie where they just explain, here's what the evil is, here's what the evil has done, here's what the evil could do to you. Like, it is just bald-faced exposition, but there's something about the way that it's put together. I don't know if it's the fact that, like, 
that uh, they, that Karen Gillan is given this like Howard Hawks sort of fast talking, snappy delivery where she talks about these 45 deaths that happen over four centuries. Um, but she's doing it in this way that sort of charms you into hanging out with her. And she just takes you through these like pure, morbid, like horror fan service litany of, of like clever deaths with these gory pictures that she holds up to the camera. And they're just these fun little bursts of, of macabre where she just walks you through how each person died in a, in a unique way. And they're all indelible to the point where they actually bring back all of these ghosts at the, you know, at the, at the end of the film. And you can actually like point out some of them like, Hey, I know that lady. She chewed on a wire. And the, the, the cap at the end of it that, that I really liked was that as she's talking at one point, She's trailing on about one of the murders, and then she pauses as she looks into the hallway, and she sees a golden retriever pass by. And we'll later learn that this is the golden retriever that she had when she was growing up. And to me, it's like this, this kind of sort of made me realize that the way that this movie unfolds, it's, it's like the movie is about taking drugs, where, you know, like you, like, much like the characters in the movie, like the audience is sort of like entering into this agreement. You know, like, we're going to do this together. And, like, things are going to get strange. And it's going to be fun. And, like, maybe it's going to get a little bit scary. But, like, you've already taken the pill. And there's no turning back. And the line between reality and fantasy is going to get blurred. But we're okay with that. And, and then an alarm goes off. And she snaps back into mode and says, let's eat. And just like that, all the groundwork of the film has been laid out. And you had fun. You're on board. You want to see what's going to happen next. It's a great exposition scene. It really is. And that leads me to one of the things I love about this movie is that you it doesn't feel like it's set in one house, albeit in two different timelines, with a, a handful of characters. And, you know, yeah, there's the auction house and there's Reuben Blades and the... Um, insane asylum where Tim needs to get out of in the beginning. There's a few cutaways. We get some paramedics and police at, at different points, but this is the very definition of a single location horror film. And it never feels that way. It never has sort of that kind of small cliche people arguing for no reason, kind of like all the tropes of single location horror. This movie it's just so well scripted and brisk that you're you're absolutely captivated by it and intrigued by the ideas that the characters are putting forth, like in the scene that you're talking about. That's so snappy. It doesn't feel expository at all. And you're just so intrigued by the mystery of it that, like, th this movie, it does not suffer any of the sort of downsides of being being small. It just doesn't. And I think that's a tremendous credit to the movie. I'm not saying it's like a super low budget movie, but how much did this movie really cost? Like this, this is a very um, contained film. So, and I, I think that's a good example of just the quality of the storytelling that makes that, that work. You know, you're not like, okay, when's something scary going to happen? You're just, you're totally wrapped up in it. I didn't even realized this until I until I actually went back and watched the scene because I'd sort of you know uh, pegged it for for this uh this call out as a highlight 
he also tells you everything that's going to happen in the movie. Like he tells you that the mom is going to die because she's shot by the husband. He tells you that the, that the son or the brother, whoever you want to look at it is going to kill the dad. They show you pictures of the bodies. Like that's it. Like, you know, who's going to die. You know, who's going to do it. The only mystery is how did it unfold? And that's what this movie is clever about doling out. Well, another great thing that some of the, sometimes these movies, the mythology is not consistent. In this movie, it absolutely makes sense what the mirror does, what its sort of powers and limitations are. It's all very consistent. And basically just the idea that you cannot trust where you are, what you see, what you hear, even like the spatiality of where you are within its sphere of influence. You think you, you might think you're in this room. You're actually in that room. You may think you're outside. You're actually inside. I I think that this is like one of that is scary on like a weirdly uh, existential or or sci-fi level. That's scary in that like just, how hard is it to deal with evil, ghosts, you know, demons, whatever, zombies, monsters, just open it up to the entire genre of horror. How scary is that as a problem? We have to deal with this. This is something that is trying to kill us. Well, add to that challenge that you can't even trust that you're even in the room you think you are. <laughs> you can't even trust that <laughs> what you're hearing and seeing is reality. I, I find that absolutely terrifying on a whole other level than like, look at the faceless woman hiding under my bed. You know, this is a different kind of scary, but it's just like, oh my God, like, what could I do? How could I possibly survive this? That's, that's a different kind of scary. This is this is the haunted house film that Philip K. Dick would write. Yeah, it it really does feel like sort of brilliant sci-fi, seamlessly melded into horror. And I do just want to point out too about that expository scene because we'll we'll get to this, but I picked an, an expository uh, scene from Under the Shadows, my low light, and this works just as well as you say. But the very first thing she says is, I don't know where the mirror came from. I don't know. I don't know what the origin of the mirror is. All I know is the first person who owned it. It leaves a void in the in the exposition that you can plug in or not plug in in any way that makes the film scarier to you. And I think that's a really brilliant bit of writing that you you get all this exposition and all this information, and we never even touch on. What is it in the mirror? Is it a demon? Is it from outer space? Is it from another dimension? Well, it, well it's, it's, it's leaving the door open for Oculus, Origin of Evil. Hey, there you go. I did notice one direct parallel, which was whispering in the ears of the characters that we saw in Oculus, that that's like a route to possession, a... Uh, evil influence exerting itself. Uh, that was one of the, the parallels between Oculus and Ouija Origin of Evil. Well, I think previously, because it was early in the film, I highlighted the sequence with the statues in the auction house. And 
I'm not going to walk us through that movie for that scene for two reasons. One being I did not have time to take notes. And another that I think I'm going to choose to use my time here instead because I know I called it out as I just love the filmmaking of that of that scene and, and sort of the, the games that it plays with the audience. Instead, I'm going to call out something as a conversational topic. This is truly not in and of itself a highlight sequence, so I am cheating, but I want to bring this up and it does not pertain to the ending. So. Here we go. The scene where Starbuck, our <laughs> beloved Katie Sackhoff as Marie, the mother in this family, thinks she hears her husband, Rory Cochran, as her husband, Alan, say, you grotesque cow, as she's leaving the room. And the reason I bring that up is because her character arc really struck me this time. This is a woman who she's not challenged by the evil in her motherhood. She's challenged as her, in terms of her sexuality and her desirability as a wife. And it's extremely consistent and disturbing throughout. Like that is the way the mirror fucks with her. A lot of it has to do with the fact that she has this scar on her stomach. A uh is it just a C-section scar? I don't know. But she is insecure about her possibly her age, definitely the scar, and she sort of suspects that her husband might be tiring of her in some way. And the the fact is that this weird spirit, Marisol is in fact seducing him. And the movie, because the movie is so strictly, not strictly, but it's largely from the perspective of the kids, we don't really get into that seduction or what it's, what's going on specifically. But we know that the one of the Mirror's previous victims, Marisol, who I believe is the one that had the like abortion thing, miscarriage something happen, because she's the body with the blood at and you know, in the crotch of her uh, nightgown or whatever, in the crime scene photos. But she is the seductress, and Katie Sackhoff. What drives her crazy? What makes her vulnerable is the feeling that oh, and in the mirror, when she sees herself in the mirror, she looks old and you know shitty. <laughs> so, in any event, I I think that it's a very interesting, relatable, like, character arc slash vulnerability, that that's what allows it to break her mind down. And specifically, I bring it up because in Under the Shadow, it's not that, but it's the fitness of our protagonist as a mother that and her relationship with her child that is the fulcrum the evil force uses to split up their relationships. And what I was going to say, what I've been planning to talk about or to throw out to you guys is that one of the main points of commonalities between these two films is that these, this evil in both films is very much just trying to undermine the relationships of the characters. You have families and 
make, you know, sowing the seeds of distrust and uh, resentment and paranoia and ultimately breaking down their trust and ability to communicate and work together is a large part of what the evil is doing. I 100% agree. And I actually noticed there's a, a symmetry between that scene and it's, I, there's something about the audio in that scene where you really do like, it, it really does leave a, a pin drop of doubt of like, did he really say that? Like, I, it's hard to say, but it's like, where did it come from in the room? feels unusual or something in terms of how it plays but it's there's a a a symmetry with the scene in under the shadow where she sees a male figure under the bed that begins to speak with her not under the bed i'm sorry in the bed with her that speaks in her husband's voice and does the same thing just lays out a line in a with a weird audio quality that feels just disembodied a little bit that hits like a like a dagger right into the most profound insecurity that that can't that that character has and you i'm glad you brought up the thing about the mirror because that is this is one of the few times in the movie where the actual reflection in the mirror like that that the mirror is able to so directly influence what's happening or what's happening to the character's psychology the mirror has a, a, a sphere of influence around the house. By and large, you don't see a lot of weird reflections. You don't you don't see any, but it's not one of the the sort of fulcrums that they lean on in the movie compared to, you know, the Kiefer Sutherland Alexander Aja mirrors, for instance, which had lots of weird shit happening in mirrors or, or Poltergeist Three or whatever. Uh, so this is one of those instances, and it's I actually find it quite subtle. You can see how she looks at herself in the mirror. It doesn't look freakish or grotesque. It just she just looks tired and kind of frumpy. And it's and it's only a little bit different from the way she actually looks, which is hard because Katie Sackoff is a, a, a gorgeous woman. But it, it, I did find that an interesting way to play that scene, and it also jumped out at me. Yeah, and again, I want I want to make clear, like I I'm not bringing that up as like that's the best scene in the movie, but I just like we have a limited sort of mandate to talk about stuff, and I wanted to really bring that up because that's one of the main things that struck me uh, in this viewing, and I think there's some ambiguity, but I'm pretty sure that the the mirror said that, like the Rory Cochran, the husband, did not actually say grotesque cow. It, it knows exactly what to say to cut her to the quick and undermine her sense of her identity. Well, sure. For one, Rory Cochran has a very compelling, she's like, what did you say? And he's just like, I didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like a totally reasonable, like he's not interested. He doesn't care what, 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 he, what uh, she thinks she heard. He's just like, I didn't say it. I don't know. Well, Vic, you mentioned the dog um, earlier. Like, there's a there's a whole sort of subplot or storyline with the dog, like wanting to get into the office, and one of the sort of subjectivity Rashomon kind of things that the movie is doing is we have conflicting flashbacks of whether the dog, you know, is sick or not sick, or you know, does the dog just disappear? I, I think that the the idea of the mirror uh, feeding on 
living things like throughout the the film like it starts with plants it, it can apparently possibly it's draining energy from uh, electricity it, it raised another question i wanted to run by you guys like this is sort of a classic development question well what happened over the the last 15 years like what happened in the auction house like why isn't this mirror running amok long before um, she she gets it back and you know sets up this situation? And the other thought, and I'll let you guys respond, take this in any direction you want to go, is is it possible that if she had just left this thing the fuck alone, like unlike uh, Under the Shadow or a lot of things? Uh, movies that we're dealing with, we have no reason to believe the mirror follows people. It just does stuff within its arm's reach. So if she had just let well enough alone, they could have gone on with their lives. That actually kind of gets to it, I think, to an, another point, another point or problem that I had with the movie. And the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, I guess I've kind of made my peace with it, which is what's the whole point of what they're doing? If she's got the mirror and she's got the yacht anchor set up, like why not hang the mirror on the wall, hit the kill switch and be done with it? Like why have that just be this thing that is just lingering the entire time? And I actually found myself asking after the movie was over, what, what was the whole, what was the whole point of everything they were doing? And I had to dig, but she does explain after they have their, their snack and the exposition scene she explains that all the videos are there to clear her brother and her father of, of what happened that night. So I feel like that's the same answer to, to your question, or at least part of your question, which is that she had to obtain the mirror in order to provide the proof for what really happened all those years ago. It's sort of a, it's, it's kind of a far-fetched proposal, but like that is in fact what she says she's doing. So I'm willing to take that face value. It is a little bit, but she also talks about all the schools that she went to and the kids would find out and the looks that they would give her. And you really get the sense that not just clearing her father's name, but that she's been haunted by what everyone believes happened in that house versus what she knows to have actually happened. And I can see how one of the really interesting things that they plant psychologically that the doctor uh, says to Tim, who was who is not Reuben Blades, uh, John, but uh, Miguel Sandoval. So, you know. Oh, Miguel you know. Sandoval. Oh, my apologies. <laughs> my, my jaw dropped when you said Reuben Blades. And I was like, no way is that Reuben Blades. I would have caught that. I love Reuben Blades. We all remember uh, Predator 2, but... Um, <laughs> I think uh, I just saw him in a movie, and I was like, oh, yeah, it's Ruben Blades. And, and um, yeah, Miguel Sandoval shows up a lot, though. Like, I've yeah. seen him a ton of times. Yeah, my apologies. Sure. Proceed. But what he says to Tim is, remember that you have had a lot of state-mandated help in dealing with this. Your sister has had to cope with it by herself. And so I that those combination of things really does fit together in a way that makes it make sense to me and makes that all sort of a satisfactory 
need for the character to drive the movie. But it's a testament to the screenwriting and everything else that it really does take two or three watches before you start to put all these things together and go, oh, all right, she actually does, she actually is satisfying a, a psychological need that I believe and am invested in. Well, I think you both contributed in your answers to my question to an understanding of it. And I'm not even bringing it up in terms of like a flaw per se. I'm just more saying if you take an outside, like a eye of God on this whole thing, there really was no reason these kids couldn't have just gotten away clean and gone on with their lives. So it's more sort of a tragic irony that she's so flawed. Um, she's so damaged and she didn't get help. That it's it's sad, it's tragic that she feels the need, you know, in her mind, in this sort of twisted sense that this is going to set everything right. She just delivers them both into the mouth of of the tiger. One of the questions I wanted to ask about the end of this movie, because I'm, I you know, I know we're going to get into it in a little bit, but I'm struck by how grim and tragic the the end of this film is, uh, much more so than than most of the movies that we've we've seen for this but is is the is the way that she went about this this a sort of nested happy ending for the film is the videos that she shot of all this eventually going to exonerate her brother or or is that outside too outside the field of vision no that's that's actually one of the darkest things about the ending is that we actually get the video confirmation that will convict him because what he actually did is she's standing there, he reaches out, he twists the fucking thing, and it kills her. Like, anyone would think that that's, that's murder. So, that's sort of one of the other, like, okay, the question is, she knew enough to know that it would warp, and there's, like, they've experienced clues in the few hours that they've been doing this experiment, that what is actually on the video is what really happened. But their perceptions of what of what happened do not line up with what the video is uh, actually recording. So, like, it would depict her uh, killing her her boyfriend, right? Like, it would just look like she cold bloodedly stabbed her boyfriend in the neck. So that's sort of again the tragic irony of all of this is that she's hoping, and so was I. Even watching it this time, I was on board with that. I'm like. Okay, well, that's why the video will help, because in documenting all of this, she will show, like, she will, she will create this story that people could watch this and say, oh, I get it. I understand what really happened. But the sad thing is, if you look at the, the actual video, they're turning the cameras to face each other. She's stabbing her boyfriend in the neck. Um, he's turning the dial to kill her. That the, What reality is being manipulated by the mirror so that terrible things are actually happening and the stuff that would explain it, it will never be seen. And, and what a great, like Vic, I'm, I'm glad you brought up, I was going to say, I'm glad you brought up Keeper Sutherland's mirrors, but I don't actually mean that statement. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you brought up that comparison. While I'm not super familiar with that film, the amount of restraint that is shown in making a haunted mirror movie where there aren't really mirror gags, but the mirror's effects are really more of a a metaphorical commentary on the way that we 
reflect reality back at ourselves like that is it is incredibly sophisticated which is describes a lot of the filmmaking here but just the genesis like the 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 modus operandi of the of the killer of the, the 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 evil force in this film is so much smarter from the get-go than anything you're expecting walking in it could i mean it could almost be a lamp or a statue or a you know the fact of it of it as a mirror i think has some some thematic resonance but in terms of its actual effect on the plot the fact that it's a mirror is not particularly relevant Absolutely. It, it's just an evil generator of reality warping effects. Ooh, yeah. evil, evil lamp. Guys, I've got an idea for my next movie. Yeah, I definitely felt like I was in like a, like a pitch meeting where they were like, okay, Vic, we want to we reboot Oculus. What else can Oculus be? A lamp? Uh, a toaster? <laughs> <laughs> what if it's an Oculus Rift? Ooh, an <laughs> Oculus Oculus, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, that brings us to low-light sequence. And, John, I actually, my, my low-light sequence sort of, sort of piggybacks on something you brought up a little while ago. So if I can, if I can jump in, I would like Go to for do it, that. Man. Although this has, a, this has a weird effect as a, as a low-light in that when I watched it, I really thought, and this was, I think it was last night, I sort of picked this thing and went, all right, well, one of the things that I find really interesting about the movie is, as we've talked about perception, and whose perception does the camera have? Is the camera an omniscient perspective? Is it showing individual characters' perspectives? Who are, whose view are we getting throughout the movie? And it's something that shifts a lot. Uh, we get two shots of, of Tim's perspective from, from his memories. The first is the dog and what happened to the dog. Did the dog go to the vet? The second is, well, did she really see another woman in the office with her dad or was he having an affair what was that memory like those are the only two shots in the movie that are i'm gonna say completely false there are lots of other shots that maybe the mirror's fucking with you or maybe it's not these are the only ones that feels like rashomon where you're seeing just someone else's version of it and it doesn't come up again and i feel like it throws the movie off a little bit to have these two instances where the camera is stepping completely outside of what happened and not just someone's perception of what happened. Can I, can I throw something out there? Yeah. This is just a theory. I think you could be right, but there was enough of a buy-in from Kaylee and enough discussion about, yeah, but you're taking these memories in the wrong order. Like, that happened, but that was before. You know, like, sort of the idea of when things happen is actually more the issue that I could interpret it. And, you know, maybe if we watch the movie a fourth time, we could totally um, determine this. But that the dog was sick at some point. They did take the dog to the vet but that's not how the dog died now i will say now that i'm saying that i remember there's actually a, a shot of rory cochran saying well one of us is coming home or something like that with the dog which exactly. is very hard to reconcile with my theory um 
but like I think this is a valid low light, but like watching it tonight, I was kind of okay with the concept of which is interesting that you know if you put your memories together in a different order, it creates a different narrative, and that's what he was doing and well and so i so again, I agree with that. There's not many. There's not much that qualifies as a low light in this movie to me. So I, I'm not even really going to argue with that. But what's more is, so I put that together. And I, like I said, I was really watching it, just focusing on on the perspective of the of the camera, and those those two shots just really jumped out at me. Just for their their what I think is their unreality. But I'm walking my dog this morning, and I'm still thinking about it which is another testament to how good this movie is. And I had another sort of revelation about where that scene goes because what he winds up doing in those scenes and part of the reason I think that you the witnessing that in some iteration of reality is important is that he actually convinces Kaylee, "Okay, you're right. Maybe I am misremembering this. Like maybe my brain is putting this together in ways that fit a narrative that I've already decided on. And remember, he says to her, let's, let's go somewhere. We can just leave. Let's just go somewhere and we'll get some coffee and we'll talk. And she says, where do you want to, you know, where do you want to go? I don't care, wherever. And that's when she walks back and sees that the cameras are pointed together. And I, there had always been this lingering thing in my head of like, you know, she's got this kill switch on the, the, you know, She's here to destroy the mirror, right? He's going to get her to go. Like, you would think that the mirror would just be like, good, go. I'm going to survive tonight. But what I realized uh, as I was walking the dog this morning is that not only is the mirror not afraid of her or her plan or all the preparations she's put into it, the mirror doesn't want them to go. The mirror has them do that in that scene, has her find it when she finds it, because it doesn't want them to leave. It's hungry. It wants them to stay. And that made it, for all of my, for whatever criticisms I have about the way the camera switches perception in those scenes, the payoff is something that I actually think makes the movie even more frightening. I don't think there's, I don't think there's any doubt from the word go about how this movie is going to end. Nick, I'm actually, I'm really glad to hear you pick that scene. I think it's interesting because I also picked that scene. I do have a, I have another one I want to talk about, but that was one of the first ones I wrote down. Mostly for me, not because I was obsessed with the, uh, with the, the point of view of the camera, although I think that's a totally valid discussion that you're bringing up. I just found the conversation itself between the two of them rather tedious. And I also found the whole debate over what did or didn't happen. And, and is it that, you know, that, that she is, is misremembering or is it that like, you know, like that she's had psychological, you know, tricks played on her by time and he understands it. Like I found that debate very tedious. This is like the, the classic debate in any haunted house movie where there's one person who's seeing the, 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 the ghost or the demon or the spirit or whatever. And then there's someone else trying to like convince them that, that they're, that they're crazy. Like none of it's relevant to the, to the plot. Like we all know that the evil is real. 
So you're just stalling by putting someone in who is trying to convince you otherwise. So I thought the dialogue was pretty superfluous and just didn't do anything to move the story forward. But then I had to backtrack that when you get to the payoff that you're talking about, where then you have a reveal at the end that the, they've actually been having this argument the whole time in the room with the mirror, that as they've been having the dialogue, they've been moving the cameras to, to face each other, that the mirror, in fact, has been controlling them throughout this entire time that they're even debating what the mirror is capable of doing. It's a genius little twist, and it actually lends some credence to the debate they're having to the point where the brother is now really boxed into a corner and has the evidence put in front of him that what he is saying or his reasoning is at least faulty. Exactly. I think it's a bigger moment for him. It's a huge moment for her, but it's a bigger moment for him when he realizes all of my talk and my theories and my counseling and my self-defense mechanisms are wrong when he sees what actually happened with them on the video and sees like the, the dead plants and the cameras facing each other. That's his big turning point. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't think the movie goes out of its way to overplay the sort of gaslighting or whatever, where, you know, the audience is, is wondering, is she just a hysterical woman or something like that? I, I don't think that this movie even bothers with it. I just think that his arc is he, he had come to a reasonably psychologically healthy place with this. If he had been allowed to just go on with his life, possibly he could have led something like a normal life, you know, after being let out of this hospital. But she brings him back into this, and he instead has to confront the, the true insanity, which is the reality of this mirror. However, I do think it's very poignant where she's like, on one level, she's so devoted to being right, and she wants to prove all of these theories, and that she understands it. But on some level, she would be relieved to just get out of there and say, yeah, you know what? Maybe, you know, I'd rather just, she she can be okay with being wrong if it meant that this horrible stuff isn't real. And just when she could walk out that door, it, it says, no, I'm real. Hello. You're right. And part of her is happy. And, and part of her might know that she's doomed at that point. You know, so I think it's a wonderful scene. It's it really is an expression of the mirror's cruelty. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, my low light is a, like just you know sneeze and you'll miss it. But there's a beat where they first go into the house, and she's like, "What's wrong?" And she goes, "Oh, yeah, I guess you haven't been here since." Dot, dot, dot. That's fucking horrible. <laughs> Look, she knows he hasn't walked back in this house. Like, <laughs> it's such an absurd beat. <laughs> like, it, it. I don't know why they needed to put that in the movie. It, 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 it hasn't jumped out at me every time, but this time I found that truly painful. Rich, you were laughing there. What, what do, do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, you are right. They, 
I mean, yes, you're right. It's it doesn't make any sense when you think about it. Like that is if that is just one of those lines that is, you know, and this happens like moments before the the exposition scene I was praising, but it's like that is one of those lines that is strictly there just for the audience. And you're right. When you break it down, it just makes zero sense that she would state that to him, unless it was for the benefit of someone else. And also, yeah. How sort of like callous and like, Oh, right. I, yeah. I, I forgot that you, that you murdered our father here. Yeah. That, that, you know, you've been in, in an institution and this is the first time you've walked into this house. What could be wrong? Why wouldn't you be okay? It's just, it's absurd. It serves very little purpose. Uh, Vic, defend it for us. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, now, this is, if, if I were to offer defense, it would only be this. It suggests that she has been there many, many, many times to the point where she can walk in and walk around without thinking about it. And I'm- so... I, I that would be that would be the defense I would offer, but it's mostly in defense. I, I think there's what I was going to say, even as a preface to that, is that there's some faint argument that that's where her character is at, that she's that sort of clueless isn't is too much of a word, but that Fo- she's focused. She's focused right. on one she's, thing. Yeah. She's she's mm-hmm. like super obsessed with her with her current objective, and she is. It's like it's 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 like the scene she's about to go into. Like she's ready to like go down the checklist. Like she is like all systems go. Like let's get the show on the road. And his like emotional detour is not necessarily like part of that. Right. I mean, I, I think it's justifiable if you see her character in a very certain way. So yeah, that's that's the defense for it. Uh, Rich, you chimed in on ours, but is there another sequence for you, Lowlight, or did did you pick Vix as well? I couldn't quite tell there. I did initially pick Vix. I, you know, there's one more that I threw in there, and this is a, this is kind of a minor quibble, but I don't know. It, it's a, actually it's a nice way to lead into the ending of the film. I think. Uh, I I don't think you'd call this the the final act of the film. The moment starts around the time that that Tim and Kaylee have have split up. Their adult selves have split up. Things are starting to get pretty weird in the house. I think this is right before the electricity goes out. And Tim is is looking on at a vision of him and Kaylee as kids. So now we're like we're now we're in a spot where where Tim is seeing things in third person, watching his memories of them as children. Then he passes his own room and has a little exchange where he and his younger self stare at each other as though they're seeing each other across time. This is followed shortly by a beat where Kaylee is uh, turning on lamps around the house because the mirror sucked out all the electricity. I really like actually the shots of the lamps being turned on. The lamps themselves are cool little props. The lighting's nice. But as she heads upstairs, she passes her younger self on the stairs without any sort of recognition. This is all fine. I mean, this is interesting, like, playing with time. I know we're weaving together a story of the, of the past and the present. But I've always been really bothered by the last act of this movie and how, like, temporally confused I get 
at it. And this time watching the movie, I actually was struck by the fact that I think the last act and the way that it's telling the story and the story it's telling is, is actually complete genius. And I think the reason why it's so confusing is this moment that I'm pointing out. Because we move from a point where characters are remembering the past to a phase in the middle here where characters are able to see themselves in the past. And then the third act, we're actually having the characters reliving the past. The, the movie is lacking some consistency in terms of how, the, how it's moving back and forth between time. And this is the one section of the movie where I feel like they don't quite get it right. And it doesn't prime you properly for the storytelling that's about to, to take place. So it's kind of a, a minor quibble, but I do think that it throws the balance off and could ruin the film on the first viewing, as it did for me. I get that it's, uh, you know, sort of disorienting, but I don't, I don't know that it ever detracted from my appreciation of the film. So I, I have a hard time with that, that, that criticism. Um, and you brought it from the very beginning that like, you don't like the sort of melding of past and present. But, you know, I, as, as much as, like, each time I watch it, I try to sort of be aware of that. It's not, it's, it's not bothering me, you know? Like, I, I feel that there's a weird chaotic element to it. The intercutting of, of these sort of, and not even intercutting. Like, you, you see the little kid actor walk by the adult actor on the stairs and, and things like that. Um, and sometimes they even seem to be aware of each other. But it's, it's just not you know, it's not detracting from, from my experience. I, Rich, that moment also jumps out at me and it has the, it has the feeling of Flanagan being like, well, this will be a cool little moment without really thinking about what the ripple effect of that moment is on the, the, the rest of the movie and the things that are, that are coming up. But how does it really undermine the mythology or the logic or like the plot logic? Does it really like, oh, this doesn't make sense? I don't I don't know that it defies it. I mean, honestly, like I think you'd have to get into the like the ending in order to like to I don't know. I I'd, I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to maybe circle back to this uh, after we talk about the ending. Okay. Well, yeah. we're well, we're on to we're on to the ending, gentlemen. I feel like we can we can just move seamlessly right into uh, that section of the of the the show here. Well, you know, I'm not going to address that specifically right out of the gate, but we will circle back to it. I, I think that the the ending is so incredibly sad that it just sort of I find it devastating. But as we've talked about with some of these movies, I want a real sad ending. I don't want a fake sad ending. I don't want a sad ending where we sort of like, yeah, but look at this and it's okay and it's kind of it's kind of sweet and tender. Like this move this movie's ending just is like there's there's no hope. Like I was thinking on some level, well, what if they review all of the tapes? Like all of the recordings? Like could could a defense uh attorney, you know, put together enough of this footage to say no they they actually accomplished what they set out to do and the more i think about it i don't think they could you know i think what the cameras actually captured would be exactly 
the ways that the mirror manipulated them, and they would look like fucking psychos. That's the real tragedy of this film, that everything she hoped that this would accomplish would actually just ensure that her brother is never going to see the light of day again. The way that she dies specifically is something else that I wanted to uh, touch on. That hoist by her own petard would be, you know, sort of the cliche here. But, like, there's a moment earlier where she saves herself. Like, it's it's manipulated her right into that spot. And she goes, fuck. And, like, you know, she doesn't, I don't know if she says it or not. But she dives forward and, you know, flips the switch. and And, and the anchor does not, uh, the impaling anchor does not launch into its deadly sweep. So she knows that this could happen. She knows that she could somehow be tricked into it. And what gets her is that her mother appears to her and wants to give her a hug. And, you know, could we, could we pick that apart? Could we say this girl should know better, you know, knowing everything she does? about this, but I still, after everything, you know, she's been broken down every which way. This, you know, moment of seeing her mother again, I'm okay with it. Like you could be, you know, classic audience stuff. Don't step into the mirror. Don't hug your mother. That's not her. Like you can, you can pick that shit apart. You really can. This this is where I kind of take it back to like the the thing I was saying about about drugs earlier is that I I really feel like that that it is a it uh, either drugs or like dream logic wherever you want to take it but like who who amongst us hasn't ingested something at some point you know has hasn't agreed to go upon some kind of journey where you saw things or experienced things that you knew in your heart were not real and yet you could not help but feel compelled to interact with them as though they were real. Whether we're talking about actually seeing something or having a conversation or even feeling an emotion. Like, they voluntarily went into this experience knowing that they were going to be manipulated in a way that was so compelling that they couldn't tell what was real and what wasn't. They just thought they could outsmart it. And so I think that, sure, she's giving into the, she's getting exactly, in a sense, what she had hoped for out of this experience to drawn into the mirror's world. I think it's telling that what we initially see is not grown-up Kaylee, it's the child Kaylee who turns and sees her mother in the mirror. And that is the... As what we're watching is, you know, the the sort of past and present merging in this really indistinguishable way. But what's a, what what the mirror is appealing to is the child inside her, is the 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 person that was left in this house with two dead parents after this horrific event alone. I and think that's a really good point. And that's what she's confronting, and that child could not stay away from her mother. Uh, and that child is still is still sort of inside of her, and that's really what she's been confronting while she's been there. Well, and, and just to, to, to kind of like rewind the, the, the story even just like a, a little bit further and to, to tie back into the thing that I brought up in, in the low light, 
that's what I thought was so genius about the, you know, the the ostensible third act of this film is that the last 30 minutes or so of this, they're not watching themselves anymore. They're not remembering the past. It is literally just reliving trauma. Like you realize that as adults, they are in the bathroom hiding from their father, just as when they were kids, they were hiding in that bathroom from their father. They're running from their mother as adults. They're running from their mother as kids. They split up as adults. They split up as kids. Like they are no longer just viewing something in third person. They are experiencing it all over again in first person. And that is, I mean, that's ballsy storytelling. And you're right, Vic, that, that is like emotionally what delivers her into that room in a way where that those actions make sense. Um, yeah, that completely justifies it because the, the border of their adult consciousness and their child consciousness has been completely obscured. And like any kind of objectivity that she had has been erased. And that's why she would be vulnerable to that at this point is that, yeah, she's not even sure if that's her or if that's a memory or if it's a fantasy and thus it might seem more harmless. Whereas like, I know that her, the rational self that walked in here, you know, eight hours earlier would never like be seduced by that, but it's broken her down to this point, you know, and that's why it's, you can buy it. I will say the, the, the issue that I take with the, with the third act and it's, it's interesting. It's difficult to, to levy this, to, to lay this criticism on it, given how brutal the ending is, as we've talked, I find something a little saccharine about both mom and dad having these moments of clarity, like as they're getting ready to, to hurt their children. And it's such a running theme across this genre, and I'm sure we've talked about this in the past, that so much of this genre is about not just families, but the capacity of parents to be cruel, to to injure, to hurt, to murder their children. You're talking about The Shining, you're talking about Amityville, you're talking about The Conjuring. It's such a, a running theme through this, and that the hope that we that we want to drop on people is at the last moment a parent's love for their children is so strong that it will overcome even this evil even this thing and i just think i i know i talked about this sort of obliquely uh before i think it's telling that that is the moment you get in stephen king's book of the shining and if The Shining, the movie, has an an edge over uh, this film and certainly some of the other ones, it is that that movie, the, the Kubrick interpretation of it, does not have that moment. Jack Nicholson is not strong enough to overcome the Overlook Hotel, not even for a moment. And that is that is is maybe the most substantial change that Kubrick made from King's book. Never mind the topiary. So I, I just think that's I, – I can't – I won't even call it a misstep, but in a movie that feels exceptional in so many ways, this felt perfunctory, that, that fundamentally 
the the climactic scenes in this movie are about the parents' love for their children being so great that they would even sacrifice you know even sacrifice themselves. I don't know that that took away from the darkness. Maybe that makes it just palatable that it would be too dark if we didn't have something in there to to hold on to. But I don't know. I, I, that's, that's quibble. Vic, I, I think that's a. It didn't occur to me. It's definitely the kind of thing I would normally say. Um, but I think there's two things that mitigate it. One is that when the mother does that, uh, when she has her moment where she, you know, stops strangling her daughter, um, her husband immediately kills her. So at at that moment, like he's, he's on board, at least to that extent uh, with the evil and, you know, does something terrible. So that immediately shifts the focus back to they are being compelled to do awful, awful things. And so there's no, there's nothing saccharine in my opinion about the way that, that beat plays. Now, the second moment, you know, where the father, you know, gets the son to kill him in order to save them, uh, that would be, you know, a little more debatable, but I just think a, within the whole context of the scene, it worked for me. And B, it's all kind of about the story that this stuff lives in. And I think that endings are so important because endings in a, a short film or a joke or something like that, a short story, are basically the entire thing. Well, that's less the case in a movie, certainly a lot less the case in a novel or a, a series of television. But I think that the fact that all of these events lead to the final scene of a movie are the real important contexts. And I think that's true of both of the films we're talking about tonight. And I think that the ending of this film at the end of the day is so bleak and so cold and so sad and so harsh that stuff like that, it does not mitigate it. This is actually him doing it right versus uh, Ouija where I, you know, called out the last time we recorded how it irked me to no end that there were two, you know, shots that sort of threw the entire mythology into question just so that people might feel a little bit better about characters dying. That, to me, is a, is a big misstep. This, it did not have that same, it was not going for that effect, and it did not have that effect for me. Rich, what's your take on it? I mean, I'm going to kind of split the difference here. Like... I think I did have the same reaction you did when it came to the father, simply because the father didn't need the redemption. And because the father was the one who had been the most seduced by the evil versus just possessed. I didn't think the father like deserved that trade off. And furthermore, it wasn't necessary the, the the kid had the gun. The kid could have ended the father without the father giving him his his blessing and i don't think that the father giving him his blessing like contributed in any way to the mental health of of that character well now, wait there there is a screenwriting reason for this i just want to throw it out before you continue if the father is truly a mad dog evil thing that needed to be killed and put down and had a redemption then the motivation, the logic of what the girl, the daughter, Kaylee does, 
is even more questionable because she's motivated both by proving that Tim was not bad and her dad. So if the dad truly is evil, then that sort of actually makes the justification of her opening this whole can of worms and not just, you know, sending that, uh, uh, that anchor to destroy the mirror that weakens that logic. That's fair. Maybe not essential, but I, but I agree that that's a, that's a pretty reasonable, uh, conclusion to draw with, uh, the mother, I found it a little more forgivable because of two things. One is that the mother had a, a very odd role in this, this possession, uh, if that's what you want to call it, which is that she was a subservient to the father in this scenario, almost forced into this role as opposed to it being something that had really taken possession of her. She was virtually a, a familiar, literally chained up in the in the father's room. And so I feel like that leaves more room for her humanity to be intact. And the other thing is strictly aesthetic, which is that I felt like it was totally worth it just to watch grotesque, horrifying, broken-toothed Katie Sackoff having that grim, sad smile at the end as she made that connection with, with her daughter. That that visual alone is enough to to compensate for any sense of of saccharin that you that you might have. The broken teeth thing is fucked up. Yeah, and, and it draws an interesting parallel because the other thing about Marisol is, if I recall correctly, that she had removed her own teeth, right, with a pair of pliers. That may be true, but I can't recall. Yeah, like, there's so much expo thrown at you about each of these victims that even though, yeah, we've seen this movie, like, at least three times now, like, some of the details blur, like, which which of the stories are which. Um, but, yeah, I think you might be right. But we never see that. Like, we never, she smiles a lot, but they don't, like, emphasize that in some way. I think there's a, I think there's an insert of the pliers and the teeth. When, when she's showing the pictures. Oh, no, I, I agree with you, but I mean, like, yeah. the, the, the dead Marisol is yeah, just all smirking and mirror eyes and stuff, but you don't get, yeah. like, hey, what's up with her mouth or something. Yeah, no, it's super yeah. fucked up. Look, that's, I mean, I, I don't want to make too much of this. This is a, this is, a, the third act of this movie is bonkers, mind-numbing, terrifying. I even, the, the, when we talked about this the last time, I think I said something about feeling like they kind of overdid it with the ghosts or the, you know, the, the mirror eyes. And I just felt like I was seeing too much of that. I didn't feel that way last time. I just, again, and I, I also seriously made a point of being stone cold sober while I was watching it. And at the end, when the kids are on the ground and the, the sort of multitude of ghosts are coming at them, my hair was standing on end when they're driving off and they're seeing the ghosts in the windows, my hair was standing on end. Yeah. And I want to say, it's both scary and horrible and heart-wrenching, and I might even have, you know, had a tear well up in my eye when I see Kaylee at the window as one of yeah. them. You know, yeah. it, it, that hit me. That just hit me. It's brutal. It's brutal. And, yeah, it's really scary when all of those things are coming at you. And I find the mirror eyes genuinely scary. I do. Yeah. I, that, that creeps me the fuck out. No, this is a movie that, got, that has got both 
deeper and remained as scary, if not gotten more scary, upon these repeated viewings. That's a hell of an accomplishment. Absolutely it is. And I want to point out that there's a weird commonality between this and Terrified and The Shining, in that the ghosts are, as Rich said, sort of familiars, or they're just incorporated into the evil. And you sort of, you lose yourself, and you kind of become a pawn, once you're dead now. Like, that's another distinction. When you're talking about when they're still alive, can they have moments of redemption? Yes. But once they're dead, no. They're just evil from there. It, give, it gives the sense that the, the victims are, are almost literally eaten yeah. by the evil. They're, they're devoured. They're incorporated into it, which seems to me a fate worse than death. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is a movie that consciously, unconsciously, probably both is one of the more bleak and disturbing and hopeless horror scenarios that I've ever run across. Okay. Any final thoughts? If I have any final thought, it's that as I was watching it, and I, I hate to end on a, on sort of a, 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 a negative against the movie, because I really, really did like it, is that if it has a flaw or flaws it, it is almost in the perfection there is something about his filmmaking and i noticed this in, in origin of evil as well that it is so careful and so measured and it is so well thought out it feels a little precious sometimes it feels a little artificial in the fact that there's nothing unhinged about it every measure is well thought out every moment and line and and scare are all very well timed and while i'm not a fan of the the shining it did immediately make me think of the shining as as an opposite you know a film that you can you can call very meticulous filmmaking but also feels like at any given moment anything could happen whereas this movie does feel tightly scripted from page one as though everything is already written and every moment is is predestined. There's no chance for this movie to go off the rails. And if we continue talking about it, I'm interested in discussing, like, is that in fact a bad thing? Is it, is it a bad thing to have a story that you have thought about so much and try to look at everything from every angle that you've sort of thought yourself into a into a corner sometimes? I watched a, a documentary many years ago, and I, I may have brought this up in the past, but the, it was about really the, the horror films of the 60s and 70s, John Carpenter, Wes Craven, uh, Toby Hooper, a lot of those kinds of movies. And somebody, one of, the, one of the commentators in the documentary said, you know, when you watch a Hitchcock film, you watch Vertigo or Rear Window or, or Psycho, you know that you are in the hands of a master. That, that every shot has been crafted to, to bring the maximum amount of suspense or the maximum amount of horror out of it. When you're watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Last House on the Left, you're in the hands of a madman, and you don't know what the fuck is going to happen. And I feel like that's kind of the distinction that you're drawing, is that this very much feels like the, the prior one. 
I will just to just to add a a a positive note. I I was able to pause it and catch this because I thought it was it, this is such a hallmark of Flanagan's filmmaking and really speaks to what you're saying a little bit. Although I found it very effective. There's a scene when Tim is sitting on the television. It's in fact it's right before they. Uh, Young Kaylee goes in to complain to dad that there's no food and the TV's out. The TV cuts to static. When the TV cuts to static, there are faces of the, I believe, of the kids in the static. And I was able to pause it and catch that. And I just thought, what a bizarre detail to throw in there. Uh, and, and the kind of thing you only notice after watching it four times. But that's how meticulous he is. Well, you would have to pause it for that. Like, I thought about pausing it, but, like, there's no way you could discern what those spaces were unless you pause it, which is which is fine. I think, Rich, you put your finger on my biggest concern about Mike Flanagan moving forward. And I love that Vic mentioned Texas Chainsaw, because that was my first comment. Like, compared to Texas Chainsaw, which is, like, just that sort of paragon of raw gritty, realistic, chaotic, possibly psychotic filmmaking and the power that that gives you. Yes, this feels, you know, Flanagan in general, controlled, measured. Those are all terms you could use. My concern moving forward is that a guy who's trending in that direction all along, my fear is we're going to look at his early movies and say he still had enough chaos, enough sort of shoot from the hip darkness that that those movies had something that eventually as he becomes more genteel would be a nasty way to say it but like I think he could turn into horror movies light where it's all about the character relationships and now and then there's sort of a, a mild chill or something like i think that there's the real potential for him to become the kind of filmmaker that 50 year old women really like and i'm sorry to say that that's a bad thing it's not that's fine but that's not what i'm looking for and i think that you're sort of identifying what would have give him that career trajectory because there is a sensitivity and sort of a even in these films He's obviously worried about. Are you guys really okay? Like, I don't. I don't really want to upset you. Are you? It's are you safe. okay? <laughs> There's an element of this movie that does feel safe. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think these are probably the two: um, Origin of Evil and this. Because don't get me started. If we ever watch Haunting of Hill House, I think the last twenty minutes of that final episode just fucking kneecap everything that came before it like i'm i'm really angry at the last episode of that and it's doing everything that we've criticized you more than me on this movie it's doing all of that times 10 so i think that he has a real uh desire as you said to be safe and i think that's the worst thing you can do in horror i'm not so sure it is a, a desire to care for the audience so much as it is he wants to wring a, a dramatic or an emotional reaction from you as well as a visceral, fearful reaction. And that's a really tough thing to do and have both of them work. And I would say that Oculus, I agree with you 
to a certain extent about the the haunting of Hill House, Oculus seems like the best job he's done of balancing the two. Uh, th- this movie's really grown in my esteem. I, I appreciate and understand your concerns, and, and I will be fascinated to see where he goes as a filmmaker after this. But my goodness, what a what a what a movie this is! What an effect it has on me every time I watch it. By the way, watching this tonight, I saw in the final credits, the closing credits, a name that I recognized. One of the executive producers of this movie was in my writing group about 15 years ago when I was writing The Wives. And he, I knew he was you know, open to horror and into it. And he gave me good notes. And he was a really cool guy. We had coffee at the bourgeois pig a couple times outside of the group and eventually somebody moved back to the east coast and the group broke up but i hadn't really seen his name somewhere and then i looked it up and i'm like yeah anil kurian is is the ep one of the eps on this movie and i used to hang out with that guy crazy there you go all right before we move on to under the shadow let's use the facilities and reload our beverages Hey guys, John here. I think this episode has gone on long enough, don't you? Let's split it into two parts, and we'll be back next time with our analysis of Under the Shadow. So go on and use the facilities, grab another beverage, do what you gotta do, and then queue up the next episode. Adios.